Good morning. Happy Easter. <laughs> Today's scripture will be read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 11. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we are, that we are who, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of, trump, of the trumpet of God. And the, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves, yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us, destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, everyone. Again, happy Easter. Uh, happy Resurrection Day. It is great to be here with you this morning. Uh, I'm just going to pray, and then we'll go ahead and get into it. Father in heaven, Lord, we come before you, God, and we are uh, humbled, Lord. We're humbled by your perfection and your goodness, God. Um, Lord, we just admit that we have uh, fallen short in so many ways, God. Uh, I pray that we would uh, worship you today. I pray that this service uh, and this message, God, would be about loving you and about your glory. Um, and Lord, not, not just that, not just while we're at church, uh, not just this morning, God, I pray that we would, um, that worship would define our lives, that uh, submission to you, that honoring you, God, would define our lives, even when we're uh, out of church, God, throughout the whole week, God, I pray that every single part of our lives, God, would uh, honor and cherish what you have done for us. Uh, so we're humbled by your goodness, God, and we're humbled by the fact that you would love us to such an extent that you would send your son to save us. Father, we praise you and we thank you, God. We praise you for your glorious power for defeating death on our behalf. 
And Lord, we ask that you would please meet us here and change our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so Easter. Easter is the day on the church calendar that we celebrate the resurrection. Uh, It's the day really where we celebrate an empty grave. So if this is your kind of first time in an Easter service or a church setting, or if someone happened to trick you into coming here, um, that's what this is all about. This is about an empty grave. Now, there is no alternative theory, whether religious or secular, that can account uh, for this empty grave. There's no uh, alternative theory that can explain away the events surrounding the resurrection. Uh, No one can account for this missing body and this empty grave except for the eyewitness testimonies that are contained in the New Testament. There is no good evidence apart from what we have in our Bibles. Now, Easter, of course, has been part of the landscape of Christian culture since the beginning. Um, But let's be honest, I think the resurrection at times can be difficult to understand. Um, Even as evangelicals, we we know the message of the cross. We understand that Jesus died to pay for our sins. But what does the resurrection have to do with me? What does it have to do with my salvation? Uh, What does the resurrection have to do with my problems, my grief, my insecurities? These are important questions, and really they're not too different than the questions that the Thessalonian church was asking. If you take a look at verse 13, Paul says that he's writing these things so that we may not grieve as those who have no hope. There was a problem of hope, a problem concerning what hope could be founded on in the Thessalonian church. They did not understand that the resurrection meant a secure hope. Now, hope is one of those things that affects everything else in life. Proverbs 13.12 tells us that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred. So that's like when you put your hope in one thing and it lets you down. So then you look to the next best thing and that lets you down. So then you look to the next thing and you're let down again. Over and over, your hope is deferred. It is left unfulfilled and that continual process makes the heart sick. And to be quite honest, I think this very accurately describes our culture and context today. So let's say you struggle with loneliness. So you place your hope in social media to provide you some kind of meaningful human connection, right? You had friends in high school, all your friends are on social media, so maybe something will work out. But social media lets you down, In fact, you feel worse after spending so much time on social media, so you put your hope in the dating app. The dating app lets you down. So you put your hope in the relationship, and the relationship lets you down. Again and again, your hope is deferred, and your heart continues to waste away. Easter is about the only object of hope that we can really place the full weight of our needs, our grief, our struggles, and anxieties on. 
The resurrection proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that the only object of hope that can support the full weight of our desperate souls is no one other than Jesus Christ. He is the only one that you can place all of your hope in and he will not let you down. In Jesus Christ, hope is not deferred. It is secure. It is fulfilled. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul was writing to a context where people were, were struggling to understand what they could rest their hope upon. He was writing to a context of, of grief over those who had passed away in the congregation. He was writing to a context of fear about the afterlife and growing hopelessness. And the point that he seeks to anchor his people in is Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, and his certain return. Is anyone here familiar with the hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast? A couple people? Yeah, uh, it's one of my favorites, if not my favorite hymn. Uh, and part of the reason why I like it so much, why I love it so much, is because it connects my heart with what's going on here in 1 Thessalonians. It opens with these words. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Again, the reason I love this so much is because it confronts my heart with the message of 1 Thessalonians, what we're going through this morning. Because the truth is, I am afraid. I am easily tempted. I cannot keep it together. My love is often cold. The truth is I cannot place my hope in myself or in my capabilities. The truth is I need someone stronger, someone faithful and true. I need a greater object of hope. I need Jesus. He is the only one who will hold us fast. So what do you rest your hopes on? Church, this is the broader context of our passage this morning. And the main idea our passage presents us with is this. Christ's victory over death assures us that he will always hold us fast. We are secured by him now, in the future when he returns, and even through death. Christ's victory assures us that he will always hold us fast. We are secured by him now, in the future when he returns, and even through death. Paul works this out in three ways. In Christ, we are secured in death, we're secured at his return, and we're secured in life. So let's take a, point, a look at point number one. 
The first thing that Paul does to address the grief of his church and to show how we are secured even in death is to teach us that Christ removes the permanence of death. Jesus changes, really, he, he has forever changed the relationship that we have with death. Uh, you may have noticed a odd, sort of peculiar expression for those who have died in this passage. All right, when, when Paul refers to those who have died, what does he call them? Asleep. Yeah, those who have fallen asleep, exactly. He repeats that three times, back to back to back. He wants to make a point that death is like sleep for the Christian. In other words, he wants us to know that it is temporary, something that will cease, some, something that we will wake up from. For the Christian, the significance of death is entirely different. It is transient, it is temporary. Okay, and here's how we know that Paul's not just trying to be extra sensitive or tiptoe around the issue. Take a look at verse 14. He writes, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So Paul goes out of his way to refer to believers as those who have fallen asleep, but he refers to Jesus Christ as the one who has died. Paul doesn't say that Jesus fell asleep. No, he died. It's a statement as clear as day in contrast to the way that he speaks about believers. Jesus faced and paid for the penalty of death so that it could have a different relationship to us. Jesus' death removed the permanence of death for all who believe in him. His sacrifice forever changed the way that death impacts us. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul puts it this way. He says that Jesus removed the sting of death so that believers can now triumphantly say, oh, death, where is your sting? And according to Paul, this incredibly dramatic change in the way that death affects us, it depends not on our rule keeping, not on how good our behavior is, but it depends on the presence of one person, Jesus. Look at how Paul goes out of his way to stress the proximity, the nearness of Christ in this passage. He says that we are brought with him and that we are rescued from death through him. So Christ is both the agent of our resurrection and the one who accompanies us in resurrection. Jesus is both the agent, that means he's the one who accomplishes our resurrection, and he is the one who accompanies us into the fullness of resurrection life. Paul could have discussed the resurrection without uh, saying it this way, without using this relational proximal language. He could have been much more efficient in his discussion on the resurrection but what he stresses is that we receive everlasting life through Christ and with Christ. Not without him. That's really simple. But there are plenty of people that want the security that Christ offers without Christ himself. But I can promise you 
that you cannot live in the kingdom without submitting to the king. The security that we have in death depends on the presence of our king and savior. Uh, About 70 years ago, there was a well-known Presbyterian pastor named Donald Gray Barnhouse. He was the pastor at 10th Presbyterian in uh, Philadelphia. Uh, so pretty, known, pretty well known in the reformed world, but he was married, had four kids, and he had four kids when his wife died of cancer. And they were driving, they were on their way to his wife's funeral when uh, they saw this big, 18-wheeler in front of them, this big semi-truck in front of them, and uh, the time of day that it was, the sun was casting a, or the truck was casting a shadow onto the field that they were driving by, the snow-covered field that they were driving by, and I just want to tell you what he had to say in this moment to his kids as they were driving to their mother's funeral. He says this, Look at the shadow of that truck on the field, children. If you had to be run over, would you rather be run over by the truck or its shadow? The youngest responded first. The shadow. It couldn't hurt anybody. That's right, said Barnhouse. And remember, children, Jesus let the truck of death strike him so that it could never destroy us. Mother lives with Jesus now. Only the shadow of death passed over her. I mean, what a remarkable thing to say to your kids. I mean, what a statement filled with sorrow, but an incredible amount of hope and comfort. Jesus faced the power of death and defeated it. Now all it is to us, to those who belong to Christ, to those who trust in him, all it is to us is a shadow. Jesus took away its sting. He took away its permanence. Jesus let the truck of death strike him so that it would never destroy us. Death may appear as this endless darkness, But the reality for the Christian is that it is only a shadow. So believers can live with a peculiar kind of hope, a peculiar kind of confidence. We can say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The sun will rise and the shadow will vanish because Jesus Christ, our almighty conquering king, is with us. His presence is our comfort and security. This ties into our second point. We are secured at his return. Now, the return of Christ may seem scary, um, I became a Christian in high school, at a Christian school, and uh, a popular book series at the time was Left Behind. 
I, I never read it, I must admit, and I don't intend to read it. But from what I could gather, this series did a pretty decent job at making Christians question whether or not Jesus may leave them behind at his return. But Paul's entire point here is that he will not leave you behind. Let's take a closer look at verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord." If you trust in Jesus, he will never leave you or forsake you. Again here, Paul is stressing the proximity, the nearness of Jesus Christ. He says that the Lord himself will come to all who are his, both dead and alive, and we will always be with the Lord. Now, I'm pretty sure always doesn't mean sometimes. As if God is going to be with us now in this life, and then at his return, he's going to happen to find something that he didn't know about before and want to leave us behind. We might be tempted to thinking that Jesus is truly with us when we're praying or when we're doing good at our devotional life or in our spiritual disciplines, we might be thinking that, uh, tempted into thinking that he's really with us when things are going really well for us. But I can promise you that no matter how difficult the circumstances, no matter how hurt you may feel, Jesus hasn't left us. And the point of verses 16 and 17 is that Jesus is going to personally escort us into his Father's kingdom. He is so concerned about getting us that he's going to come and do it himself. That is amazing. Like, he doesn't send his angels to retrieve us. He doesn't, like, call us up into his office or something like that. He doesn't summon us. No, he is personally coming to get us. He holds us now through the Holy Spirit that he has given us, and he is coming back for us to get us face to face when he returns. Now take a look at the way his return is announced. Paul writes with the cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and the blast of the trumpet of God. Now maybe that seems like a random detail, like trumpets are just really appropriate for this kind of thing. But Paul wants us to know that Jesus' return communicates something distinct, something unique. His return is way different than, let's say, a victorious Roman general coming back from battle. That's something that the Thessalonian church would have been very familiar with. No, Christ's return is distinct. It is special. His return, 
is like the presence of God when it shook Mount Sinai. Let's take a look at this passage from Exodus. Exodus chapter 19. This is after God delivered the Israelites from Egypt. You know, part of the Red Sea did the 10 plagues there. He gathers them to Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai, and here Moses writes, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. The sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him, in thunder. Keep in mind, this is the first time in the Bible that God's presence is announced by a trumpet like this. So what Paul wants us to know is that just as the trumpet announced God's presence at Sinai, so will the trumpet announce Christ's presence at his return. It is the same kind of announcement It is the same presence. In other words, Christ the King is God in the flesh. The same God that delivered Israel. The same God that split the Red Sea. Now, uh, we have a couple kids in the room. Kids, I have a question for you. And I know you know the answer, so don't be shy. What is... Um, Another event in the Bible where trumpets are really important, they play a really big role, like a battle in the Bible where there's a lot of trumpets. Let me know. That is a true story. Well done. Thank you. One time, I forgot the city's name, but they had... Yeah. The trumpets played for a couple days, and then the walls just came down. Exactly. Bingo. Yep. It's when uh, the Israelites marched around the city of Jericho. Um, Jericho was this really is a huge walled city. It was like this impenetrable fortress that was effectively keeping God's people out of the promised land. So what happens is the Israelites march around the city seven times, and on the seventh time, they blow that final trumpet, and the walls come crashing down. Now, another interesting detail that Paul adds about Christ's return in another letter, uh, in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, he says that, at the final trumpet, Christ will return. So just like the trumpet announced God's presence at Mount Sinai, so the trumpet announced God's presence at the enemy's gates, at Jericho. It announced that God was with his people. That was the strength of Israel's armies. So when Christ returns... He returns showing his power, his preeminence, and the gravity of his presence as God in the face of the enemy, in the face of death, 
God's presence is announced. He is our creator. He is our king. That is who Jesus is. And he will return in the splendor of his majesty. And, and we can't miss this part. He will return showing an incredible amount of care and compassion for his people. There are two things that I think that keep us from fully appreciating the promise of Christ's return. One is not realizing who it is that is coming for us, right? So often we forget that the, the splendor, the splendid glorious God that delivered Israel is coming back for us, right? The one who is unbridled in power and authority. That's the God who's coming for us. And the second thing we often forget is the compassionate manner in which he is coming. Jesus Christ is not coming back to reprimand or rebuke us. He's not coming back to tell us how disappointed he is. He's not coming back to tell us that we should have and could have done better. No, he's coming to bring us home. Christ's priority, his first order of business, according to Paul, here is to gather his people, both the dead and the living, so that we will be with the Lord always. God intends to come and get us, not to express his disappointment in us, but so that we can be with him always so that we might be closer to him. The comfort Paul offers here to those who are grieving, to those who are losing hope, is that Christ himself is coming back for you. Brothers and sisters, I can tell you that God is not annoyed by our neediness. He's not disgusted with our failures. He's not ashamed of us. He's not reluctant to receive us. No, he's personally coming to get us because he, that's what he's concerned about because he cares about us. I had a friend in high school, a good friend of mine. We went to youth group together, but at one point in high school, she, uh, she got in with the wrong crowd of, crowd of people at her school. So she got into shoplifting. Um, and one day, right here on Kadena, she was shoplifting at the BX, and she was caught. So of course she's handcuffed and taken to the police station. And they call her parents. And so her dad shows up to come and get her. He walks in to the police station. He takes one look at his daughter, and he just goes over to give her this great big hug. He came to comfort her. He could see the incredible amount of distress and fear and shame that was all over her face. And on the whole way back home, he doesn't say a word about like, oh, you were so stupid. Like, think about what you've done or you've brought shame on our family. Nothing like that. No, he showed up to comfort his daughter. He showed up to be a dad and make everything okay again. He showed up to bring her home. 
in a far, far greater way. When Christ returns for us, he's not coming back to punish us. He's not coming back to tell us how ashamed we should be of our actions or to express his disappointment. Because we are found in Jesus Christ, there is no need for God to rebuke us before he comes back to get us. And look, he knows that it hasn't been that awesome here. He knows how you've struggled and how you've failed, but he's not coming back to deal with your sins. He's not coming back to tell you that you should have and could have done better. He's already dealt with all that. He's already dealt with all your failings and your sins. All that was paid in full. That account was closed. The moment that Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. The reason God is coming back for you is to bring you home so that you can be with him always. There is one reason we do not have to grieve like those who have no hope. His name is Jesus. We are held by his power and comforted by his presence. He is the one who saves us from death, the one who's personally coming to retrieve us at his return, and he is the one who guarantees our entrance into God's kingdom. All right, last point here. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to highlight the main thing that's going on. So what we see over and over again in, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, is a call to be watchful, to live in a manner characterized by watchfulness. Now, being watchful assumes that you're expecting someone or something. In this case, we're expecting that Jesus is going to be faithful to his word. So this is not, like Paul's not telling us to live a disciplined life for the sake of being disciplined, but he's telling us to be sober-minded, loving, and hopeful because we are expecting someone. This is relationally motivated because we are anticipating the compassionate, loving, face-to-face -face presence of our Savior. So verses 1 through 8, that's a call to be watchful. And then in verse 9, Paul gives us the reason. Okay, so be watchful is, is 1 through 8. And then he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that means no matter who you are, God is in control of your destiny. He provides your every breath. Every beat of your heart is dependent on his grace. Our lives are secured by his sovereign rule. In other words, God is in control. That is why we must be watchful. But God's sovereignty for Paul here is not an excuse for us to be idle it's not an excuse for us to neglect watchfulness. Now, some people 
Like theology nerds like to debate about this sort of thing. You know, what takes precedent? Human responsibility or God's sovereignty? But what I would say is that maybe, maybe you should consider that God could be sovereign in such a way that you are also fully responsible for your choices. I mean, he's God. He transcends the way that we understand cause and effect. God's sovereignty, in fact, is the reason we may live with such expectation as to be truly watchful. Because God is sovereign, we can have this kind of confidence that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. That is why we can be truly watchful. Now, a remarkable example of this kind of lifestyle, uh, a life marked by watchfulness in light of God's sovereign care, is the life of Eric Liddell. Now, this is the same Eric Liddell that I introduced to you several weeks ago. So this is the Scottish Olympic champion, Eric Liddell. Uh, This is the missionary to China, Eric Liddell. This is the same person who uh, today in secular communist China, there is a big memorial to him as a Christian missionary. So he had a huge impact. And he died uh, during the World War II time period um, in China in a Japanese prison camp. Before he died there, he had sent his family uh, back to England. He devised their escape plan. Uh, He had a wife who was pregnant and two daughters. And uh, while he was in this prison camp, he eventually died of a brain tumor. And before the end of his life, um, before he was about to die, he he, he wrote one last letter to his wife. And really only two things are, you can only make out two things on this letter. Everything else is incoherent. The first thing he writes is, darkness is closing in. So he knew that, that this was the end for him. That this was the end for him on this earth. That's the first thing he wrote. The second thing he wrote is all will be well. So this was written with the last of his strength. This could have been his last coherent thought. And what he wanted his family to know more than anything else is that all will be well. We could ask ourselves, like how on earth can he say something like that? Like it's really not going to be okay. He has a daughter he hasn't met, three kids who need their dad, a wife left in dire circumstances. It could really not be okay. So how can he say that? There's only one reason he can say that with any integrity. There's only one reason. He made it such a point to write that with the last of his strength. The basis for his confidence is the fact that Jesus lives. Death does not have the final say. He conquered the grave. So we do not grieve like those who have no hope. We grieve like those who love deeply, with no regard to gain or reputation, 
we love fully. So our grief will be difficult. But we grieve like those who know one undisputable fact. Jesus lives. We can meet with him. We can commune with him. We can know his love every single day of our lives. Therefore, we can grieve, we can fail, we can struggle, and we can even worry like those who know all will be well. The message of Easter is simple. Jesus died and was raised to life. Death could not hold him. He conquered the grave. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And there is nothing in heaven or on earth, past, present, or future, that is outside of his good and sovereign rule. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is at the same time the creator, sustainer, and absolute treasure of this universe. And he will save all who trust in him. So where have you placed your trust? What have you placed your hopes on this morning? Submit to Jesus. Really trust in him. Don't just believe something about him, but place your trust in who he is and that his work counted for you, not for a better version of you, but trust that his work counted for you and I promise he will save you. He will hold you fast and you will be secure in life, in death, and at his glorious return. He will never leave you or forsake you. We will be with the Lord always. And where our Lord is present, the only thing that death can threaten us with is its shadow. For those who trust in Jesus, the words of my favorite hymn ring true. For my life he bled and died. He will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life. He will hold me fast till our faith has turned to sight when he comes at last. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for doing uh, for us on our behalf what we could never do for ourselves. God, you defeated the invincible enemy. And because you live, Lord, we know that we will join you in perfect resurrection life. Father, I pray that you would uh, set our perspectives uh, to the eternity that you have called us to. 
Father, I pray that we would trust in you, God. I ask that you would be so kind and so merciful as to be at work in our hearts, to help us to know your love, to trust in you and honor you, Lord. Father, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.